Welcome to the first episode of Hard as Nails, brought to you by Outsider.ie, Ireland's adventure magazine. My name is Kevin, and uh, thank you for joining us from wherever in the world you might be listening from. In this podcast, we have the incredible honor of speaking with Ireland's top ultra runner and adventure racer who holds a number of records from races and challenges, both on and off road. It is none other than Ian Keith. Ian, thank you for taking the time to speak with us on the Hard as Nails podcast. No problem, it's my pleasure. Well, Ian, with uh, any brilliant story, there is most often a good beginning to go along with it. Uh, tell us how you got into marathon and ultra running, because uh, you only started it uh, at the age of 30. Yeah, quite late in life. I was mm-hmm. a pretty nerdy kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, my main sport as I was growing up was actually pitch and push, which is mini golf. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a surprising <laughs> background. I kind of counted as living my life backwards, kind of. But I do now know that golf is indeed a good walk wasted. Uh, <laughs> the experience to say so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true. Mm. And basically, I, I I describe it as falling in with a bad crowd, ironically. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just got to know people who uh, were into scouting and things like that and did hill walking. And I, I basically got dragged out on hill walks mm. where, uh, almost reluctantly <laughs> and just discovered, wow, this is brilliant. You know, that whole being out in another world, out in the mountains, away mm. from civilization was just awesome and fantastic and yeah. i love the release and the freedom of it so mm. that got me into hill walking and then uh one of my best friends who was uh, into scouting past back in me he uh he was going to do a mountain marathon two-day orienteering event uh mm-hmm. with his uh, ex-girlfriend and i stupidly said as we were coming back from a, a hill walk one day well if she pulls out i'll do it and she pulled out the following week and i was oh no <laughs> <laughs> but uh i got dragged in anyway and yeah. uh I, at first i hated it because of the speed and then i discovered i loved it because mm. we, were, we were just having a lot of fun out there and i enjoyed the, the competitiveness of it and, mm. and we made a bit of a mess of the last control in that event and ended up coming fourth just missing on prizes and both of the attitude of well, we got to get that right and come back and do it again. Yeah. It sort of all grew from there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it did progress from there. But uh, when did you realize that you were, in fact, uh, pretty good at running over incredibly long distances? But not only that, also able to compete in and win races. Uh, well, I suppose I, with the outdoor uh, hill walking and so on, I, uh, and especially with the mountain marathons, uh, a group of my friends from that world were doing uh, the Dublin City Marathon. Mm-hmm. And I remember clearly the last long training one we did before us, and these were people I'd have looked up to as been the really fit people I was trying to emulate. And I ran away from them basically on the last uh, <laughs> long run because I was feeling so great. I just yeah. got the finish. And that's when I realized that oh, I can actually run, which was a bit of a surprise to me because when I was in school, I was always last in any running races because mm. they were all sprints. So I adjusted my targets for that first marathon now 20 years ago at this stage. Mm. And I decided I'd give it a go and running it under three hours in pace for that. And I actually managed to get 2.57. And that's, that's pretty much yeah. when I realized I could run and I could run pretty fast. And then uh, about a year, you know, I got into the same group of people dragged me into hill running, and mm-hmm. I was the only ultra runner at that stage was a 50-kilometer hill run. Mm-hmm. Uh, so about a year or two later, I, I got up the uh, the gumption to 
enter that and uh, ended up in the league group of four, you know, uh, try, competing to, to win the race for most of the race. Unfortunately, I came fourth in that one, but it was kind of the same thing. Mm. Got to come back and get that right the next time, having learned how to race. And, and it just, it grew from there. Mm. And at that race, uh, the organizer uh, suggested that I try a 100k race for running for Ireland in a, a local international, the Amber Celtic Plate, which is England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, mm-hmm. all competing against each other. And I went to that and I did quite well, um, but I was disappointed that I ran the second half slower than the first, but mm-hmm. they put all the uh, the spit times up for all the runners back in the old days before you could get a computer and they actually put all the manual spit times up for all the laps. Mm-hmm. I looked around and went around and looked at everyone's splits and realized that I had the least fade of anyone. So I thought I was starting to realize that not only could I run reasonably well, but I was, I was good at pacing, which was definitely a great uh, attribute to have when mm. you take it into the ultra world. Mm. And it all sort of grew from there. And, you know, I, I just took on more and more challenges. And every time I pushed out to a longer distance or a race that was on paper more difficult, I found that I was getting more competitive. Mm. Which and it, That goes that's continued to this day and it's kind of a horrific thing in a way you know <laughs> yeah. life would be so much easier if you were good at 100 meter sprinting because you know it's all out of the way in 10 seconds <laughs> yeah. train in a, in half an hour instead of having to train for five or six hours <laughs> and you know race for days at a time mm. <laughs> <laughs> definitely now Ian when it comes to training for marathons half marathons the amount of time that's been putting into uh, that type of work before a race one would imagine is most likely less than the amount of training involved when preparing to do ultra marathons is this true for you and how do you juggle between the time you spend training and your job which is in it in my case i definitely uh, go for high mileage training mm-hmm. but you you find there's as many training plans as there are ultra marathons even in the, the top end i mean i talked to a lot of the top end guys and everyone's got a different approach there's, there's definitely no right way mm. uh, but what definitely works for me in my case is to stretch out my ability to last long distances and mm-hmm. my main tool for doing that in, in terms of training is back-to-back long runs for the weekend and these days that could be you know six hours followed by six hours <laughs> yeah. not run at any pace just run to survive it with the idea of the exact one you're doing it tired mm. and just getting used to the time on feet time on feet time on feet so these days it doesn't save me to be running you know 24 hours 36 hours in one go and my feet don't get tired because mm. i've spent years training up for that but it does take years to train up and you know hill walking turned out to be a pretty good background start mm. to that because you know, that trains you to be out for hours and hours at a time. Mm. Then, of course, jogging with a job. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you just got to commit. You got to choose what's important in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on, I realized that you, I couldn't uh, couldn't continue watching the amount of television and things like that that I was, you know, watching in my younger days when mm-hmm. I was more of a nerdy kid kind of thing. So, you know, that got thrown out of the way. I don't really watch television anymore. So, mm-hmm. When I got home in the evenings, you know, the first thing I do is turn around, put my gear on, get out the door and get training. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it's prioritization, really. So my life is, you know, work, training, mm-hmm. and of course, I have a marriage as well. You know, my, yeah. my lovely wife, Helen, <laughs> she, gets, she gets priority ahead of the running as well. <laughs> okay. But uh, look, I met her through running, so, okay. uh, you know, that helps in a big way. And, you know, that, that definitely assists with trying to juggle everything together.
yeah, yeah it, it's prioritization in life for sure. And, and for me, I, I describe running as a lifestyle mm. uh, as much as anything else where, where other people might try and squeeze it in between things. Mm-hmm. I kind of invert that and other things get squeezed in between the running. Yeah, definitely. Now, before we start uh, discussing uh, the notable races and challenges that you've done in the last couple of years, as I mentioned in the introduction, you run on both uh, tarred surfaces and also off-terrain. Which do you prefer and feel better suits the type of endurance running you do? I normally prefer the one I'm not doing because the one I'm doing is hurting. It's a hard one to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I change my mind all the time about which what I prefer, which one, uh, which one I'm better at. Mm-hmm. I suppose overall, I'd have to say, I, I you know, the off-road tends to be a much better all-round experience, uh, and in some ways, it's the easier one. Even though on paper the races look more difficult, mm-hmm. it's what makes them difficult is what makes them mentally easier in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Which is that you tend to be making a journey, you tend to be in a fantastic landscape quite often, you know, and there's a lot to distract you and look around mm-hmm. and enjoy. Where it's kind of the opposite, particularly with the the long, say, twenty four hour races or multi day races on the on the flash, which are usually looped courses by their nature, and they're mm. they're mentally much more challenging. But then it's the purity of them that makes them interesting. You know, if you're mm-hmm. say something like a twenty four hour race on a on a four hundred meter running track, which I've done many, you know, that's a very mm-hmm. pure form of running that just isolates it down to the essence of insurance running with mm-hmm. no other factors taken out. Now, I like that purity, but it, it's definitely tougher. Mm-hmm. It, it's asking a lot more of your mind and a lot more of your, your uh, ability to, to dog it out. Mm-hmm. Generally, uh, the, the mountain ones, even though on paper you've got to deal with the ups and the downs and the weather and you know, all sorts of things and not getting lost, etc., etc. <laughs> but I, I actually enjoy those challenges. So it's probably more fun overall. Mm-hmm. The problem is, from my point of view, I'm... I'm I'm reasonably good at both, so you know I don't want to drop either. (laughs) Well, it's very interesting how the mind plays such an important role in both the terrains, and we'll be chatting a bit about that a little bit later. But, but Ian. Let's go back two years now, 2016. You'll remember well. You took part in what is known as Britain's most brutal race, the Spine. I guess you didn't just take part in it because it's the grueling 400-kilometer endurance race. Uh, you completed it in 95 hours, 23 minutes, and you shattered the previous record. Looking back now, what stands out the most from that experience, considering that you slept for just under six hours in total? I, what stands out for me is, is how much control I, I I had in the race. Uh-huh. It was a very controlled effort, uh, and it was a very deliberate effort to just, you know, do things my way, run my race, keep it within my comfort zone, and you know, run it from start to finish, never push myself beyond the point where I'd, I'd overtire. So it was a very controlled race, and you know, that for me, that was the, the, the standout feature of, of how I managed to do that one. I, I'd run it the, the year before, and mm-hmm. as my first uh, attempt at it, and I'd learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the year before, it disrupted a lot, so we ended up having to, the races halted for up to 24 hours at a time and we ended up running more of it in daylight than you normally expect there's normally two-thirds of our races because it's january in, in the uk it's, it's mostly with darkness but we got to, i got to see a lot of the course in daylight and i remember places i've been and you know having seen in daylight i remember it even better so uh that was very useful learning experience i was able to apply all that mm. into, to 2016 so it really was i often say that any given race um, whether it be 
distance or over a particular course. The, the first one is your learner and the second one you go for the, mm. you can tie it all and go for the actual, your best shot, possibly. Mm. Uh, so it's definitely the case there where I learned so much in the first go at the spine and just, I should have won the first one actually, but uh, yeah, I got a few things practically wrong. So Pavel, the, the old king of the spine, was able to beat me, but the following year I got very little tactically wrong and got so much right that I was able to, to smash Pavel's old record, which mm. most people thought was pretty awesome. <laughs> but I was, yeah. <laughs> so I was very happy to do that. Mm. You know, very, very happy. Yeah. Well, speaking of records, uh, Ian, if tackling the spine wasn't enough, the, the following year you set out to run the length of Ireland, which is some 550 kilometers this time. Once again, uh, you obliterated the previous record after completing the head-to-head challenge in three days, three hours and uh, 47 minutes uh, did you set out to break the record and w- what was the most challenging part of this run definitely set out to break the record that was the, the entire uh, the entire target there mm-hmm. and uh, yeah uh, the most challenging part I suppose was uh, just keeping going you mm-hmm. know setting out the right pace I spent a lot of time preparing for it I've been eyeing it up as a challenge to do for probably around 10 years <laughs> and coming up with good reasons not to do it <laughs> and after good reasons not to do it and eventually managed to uh, get rid of all the reasons not to do it yeah. and there it was let's go do it and once I targeted then uh, you know spend a lot of time preparing in terms of figuring out what would be the optimal route and you, mm. you've got some interesting choices there because you know do you go for hills that are shorter or do you take a longer way around that theoretically flatter and easier mm. you know do you try and avoid main roads do you try and stick to them you know do you, is there a chance of going off roads to find somewhere quicker lots of things to factor mm. in and I enjoy that whole planning aspect as well and probably the one of the bigger aspects was to uh, have a good support crew who I could trust and rely on and mm. got that sorted early with my adventure racing teammates volunteering to have me and that's perfect because you know we're used to working together mm. uh, for days out there sleep deprived under mm. harsh conditions so you know you know you can trust them you know you can rely on them and they mm. know you and you know them so that was absolutely ideal so yeah um, uh, just overall generally the hardest thing was um, keeping going because mm. 550 kilometers across the road is a, <laughs> it's a long way mm. you know and I wanted to minimize the stopping time I'd, I'd obviously done my research into how all the previous record holders I I know very well one of the old record holders there Richard Donovan's a good friend of mine he would have set up maybe four people back mm. and uh, so I was able to talk to him about it. and you know, I just knew that I could see there was you know, if you tightened up the sleeping there was time to be gained if you could just keep a good steady pace there was time to gain um, so I just set out with all that in mind and as it happened, you know, going into that, I'd have had great difficulty saying what my best ever run was because there's a few different candidates here and there. But mm-hmm. having done it, I can now say with certainty that was that was definitely the best run I've ever run because mm-hmm. I just got it all perfect. And you know, running towards the end, heading up to Malin Head, the mm-hmm. top end of the country, and nothing was hurting. The sun was shining. Mm-hmm. I was hitting a faster pace, and I was targeting. Everything was great, mm-hmm. and after three days to be in that sort of condition and, you know, run up the last hill at speed, mm-hmm. you know, be not even be hungry or not, not too fatigued at the end, you know, despite giving up my all. Yeah, it was perfect. Mm-hmm, yeah. And it's not often you reach the end like that. That yeah. was spot on.
that was the combination of all those years of training. It worked. <laughs> That's how you end a movie off right there, just like that. A spectacular yeah. finish. <laughs> it would have been a good point to retire, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ian, incredibly running the length of Ireland. It's not the longest distance you've ever done. What is that distance? And can you actually do training for these type of ultra marathons that don't just take hours, but days, literally? Yeah, the, the longest distance I've run was uh, a six-day race. I've done two six-day races, which those were flat looped courses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I did, I've done one in New, New York and uh, one in Hungary. And the Hungarian one, I ran 816 kilometers, Whoa. which is my personal <laughs> test distance-wise over the six days. Uh, they are mentally probably the toughest thing I do. Yeah. Uh, they, they are really, really tough. Just keeping yourself motivated to keep going round and round and round like a hamster on the circuit. Yeah. Um, they're really tough. Um, so, yeah, it, it, they're hard to train for because, you, you know, you have to, obviously, you have to train for as much endurance as you can. But there becomes a point where, you, you know, how much is too much training? Are you just training yourself into ground? You know, a lot of uh, ultra runners can overtrain mm-hmm. by just trying to do too much mileage and not listen to their body correctly. And, and as they start to get slower because they're overtraining, they think they need to work harder because they're slowing down. Mm-hmm. And that just it becomes a vicious circle. And mm-hmm. they can literally drive themselves into overtraining syndrome where they don't recover for literally years wow. and take themselves out. And a lot of very prominent uh, top American ultra runners have have done that to themselves. It, it's more frequent than you'd think it was, and it would be, and it's definitely a hazard of the game when in big endurance sports such as ultra running or anything similar. So you have to know your body and listen to your body and know when to back off. And mm-hmm. you know when you know when you're tired, you're tired, and you have to undo that, and not press through it too much. Despite the fact that you also have to get used to. Uh, running while you're tired and it's, it's a good training practice to do that so there's a lot of subtle balancing going on mm. and there's not a lot of good sports science beyond marathon distance so you have to figure out a lot of it for yourself there's mm. some great stuff but there's not a lot of it I can only imagine now Ian the most recent challenge you did uh, was by no means the longest as some of the other ultra marathons you have run in the past but it was absolutely the most brutal it's referred to as the race that eats its young and uh, where dreams go to die among other heartwarming titles like that it is obviously the Barkley marathon now for our listeners who have not heard about this insane race can you provide them with uh, some of the the basics of it and also the bizarre entry procedure that uh, selected few participants have to do the basics of it is it's a uh... Uh, theoretically, around a 100-mile race mm-hmm. uh, in Tennessee, in Frozen State, State Head Park. The origin of the race is that uh, James Earl Ray, the guy who shot Martin Luther King, was in a prison there and mm-hmm. uh, did a prison break. He escaped. <laughs> and there was a huge manhunt, and after about 48 hours or so, they found him about 8 to 10 miles from the prison. Mm-hmm. And Laz, the organizer of Lazarus Lake, is the nickname he goes under. Laz... So all this, these Tennessee natives, and he reckoned eight miles wasn't that far. Surely ultraunners could do better. Mm. So Lav got the idea to organize a race in Frozen Head and see how ultraunners could do. But that Lav's quite a character, and he decided to make the race what he considered to just be on the edge of what is humanly possible to complete. Mm. 
So uh, the race it consists of uh, a loop, which you have to do five times mm-hmm. to finish. And it's been running for about 33 years. And in that 33 years, only 15 human beings have actually managed to finish the race. So lads have done a good job of, of setting the, the barrier. That's mm-hmm. out of about 1,000 star, starters over those 33 years. And mm-hmm. uh, if you do three laps, it's called a fun run, which mm-hmm. part of the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not so fun. <laughs> part of the whole joking. So the Barkley, it's a good head wrecker as well. You yeah. know, lots of things in it, including the entropy seizure. Everything is is designed to be difficult. So there's no website, there's no obvious entry procedure. You have to just figure it out. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no one's going no to tell you very easily, but there's a lot of stuff hidden in plain sight out there to help you along <laughs> your way. <laughs> and I'm certainly not going to broadcast what the entry procedure yeah. is. <laughs> but I figured it out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, talking to the right people is a good start. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and getting in is is quite the cheap yeah. because only only about forty runners get to do it every year. Um, um, you know, there's definitely thousands try and get in every year because of its reputation as the hardest race in the world. Mm-hmm. And having done it and being able to compare it against a lot of other hard races, I think it's it's everything it's cracked up to be. It certainly <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <laughs> We're very very worthy of his reputation. Yeah. Well, being. It, your first attempt at Barclay, what was your strategy going into it? Did you have a plan? Because uh, are you allowed to speak to former participants who have done the marathon, or, or is that sort of thing forbidden? Oh, well, you're allowed to speak to whoever you want. Uh, but anyone who's done the Barclay knows the deal that, mm-hmm. you know, you don't just tell everyone everything about it. So mm-hmm. getting information about it gets, gets more interesting. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, the other thing is, you don't know what the, what's real and what's not real because there's a lot of legendary stuff and a lot of guys closely connected to it will happily try and mess with your head. Yeah. Uh, so you can spend a lot of time trying to work out you know, who's serious and who's not serious and what do I need to be serious about. Mm-hmm. You know, even as part of the entry process, you do have to complete a written exam. And <laughs> you know, When I first saw all the questions in the exam, I thought they were ridiculous. And then when I started looking into them, I realized that uh, all these questions were actually answerable uh-huh. but then I started thinking am oh, I meant to give serious answers and so on so you know you just end up wrecking your own head thinking yeah. it's all true um, so it's it's a very interesting process that way so you are allowed to talk to people you're not allowed to go and try and wreck you the course mm. um, that's definitely against the rules mm. uh, there's very little material out there that would help you with it anyway mm. um, so yeah, you're at a big disadvantage as a newbie going in because so much of it in Berkeley is knowing how to find your way around. Mm. And really, from my experience doing it, you really have to you know, go out there and get in there and do it. There's so much to it that you're really not going to figure it out yeah. from doing it beforehand. You just have to launch yourself at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that only 15 people have ever completed Barclay and, and none of those came from this year's race. Uh, your race uh, sadly came to an end uh, when you broke your collarbone. How did that happen and how is it doing now? Uh, I was, uh, the broken collarbone was just a simple thing. I was mm-hmm. out on the second lap, mm-hmm. having completed the first lap, but the weather had gone to absolute hell. Mm-hmm. It was literally thunder and lightning, uh, rain hammering down. Laz described it as having imported Scottish weather, especially for me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Julie was. So middle of the night, rain hammering down. 
out in the middle of nowhere on the Barclay course. And I had uh, set out with one other person on the second lap, mm-hmm. uh, Maggie, uh, who was an excellent runner. Mm-hmm. And we picked up two more people who had gotten lost looking for the first book on the second lap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then it was a group of four. And then uh, approaching the third book, we found yet another lo- uh, runner who was highly confused and spent about three or four hours trying to find book three. Yeah. So we picked him up as well. And as we were, I had a kind of a formula, which I'd worked out on lap one as to how to refine the book uh, coming back again. Mm-hmm. So I was about to put that formula into practice, which involves going to a peak and then going down a ridge and you eventually find it on a ridge. Uh, and uh, the ridge, the, the peak was covered in stone, granite stone caps. And I just slipped them on the stone caps and... Uh, because it was so wet and just went flying and crashed down onto the, the, the back of my shoulder. And I, I knew from the force of the crash that that could be big enough to possibly break something. And then mm-hmm. I, as I picked myself up uh, and felt the picking uh, feeling, I knew ah, that's definitely a broken collarbone mm-hmm. and uh, said it to the others. So that, uh, every year the race has a different motto on the numbers and this year's motto was help is not coming which is pretty <laughs> accurate <laughs> in, in generally Bart you know you're not tracked uh, mm-hmm. the organizers don't know where you are you're expected to find your own way back no matter what happens so you know if you did get into trouble it would probably take 24 hours or so before they even you know get worried about it because mm-hmm. uh, you're expected to be out there for a long time so I knew that you know Despite the broken collarbone, the, probably the easiest thing to do was to, to you know, I was going to walk out, so I might as well walk out staying mm-hmm. on the course, which is what I did. Um, so yeah, it was just a simple thing. Uh, my big worry was actually that it would affect my ability to use my walking pole because the terrain in Barclay is so uh, steep. Mm-hmm. You know, I was wondering going in, you know, and pretty much everyone there is, is a top athlete of some kind. And I was wondering, quite often you see that the really top guys don't use uh, walking poles when they're doing long running races. But I think everyone in Barty was using poles because mm-hmm. it's so steep that you don't only use them for the extra power and speed, but at times you're using them for balance and traction. Um, and so I was worried with the broken collarbone that I wouldn't be able to use one of my poles, which would have slowed me right down. But mm-hmm. it turned out it was okay for that. What did cause the problem was that. Uh, you know, because I now had a broken collarbone, I really should not slip and fall on the, the right side, which mm-hmm. is the side I'd broken the bone. But the, again, the ground being so steep and so technical, you know, I was able to go down a lot of it, a lot of the time, sort of erring to the left and falling on my left side as best I can. But mm-hmm. you just don't get a choice all the time. So <laughs> there must have been six or seven times when I uh, slipped and I'm flying on my... Uh, bounced down onto my right-hand side, and that's when I would have been uh, <laughs> breaking blasphemy laws and teaching my uh, my new friends lots of interesting new Irish words that they wouldn't have heard before. <laughs> well, I suppose it wouldn't be called one of the toughest races on earth for any reason, as you well know from, from that experience. But with that said, Ian, do you think Barclay is too difficult, or is it in fact not as brutal as we are led to believe? It's definitely as brutal as we are led to believe. Okay. It is absolutely everything it was cracked up to be, and mm. more. Uh, I mean, this year, I, I realised how phenomenal all the athletes are, and they're, you know, they're, they're really good guys. So, like, so Guy Robbins, he's spending his entire time concentrating on getting a Barclay finish. He's 100% focused on that. Mm. And he still, this year, only managed to get three laps. 
and timed out on the third lap. And I just realized, and Jamil was the last runner we picked up there, and Jamil is someone who's, who's, who's got nine laps over his Barclay history. He's a very experienced runner and a very fast runner, and I could see even being with him how fast he was. Mm-hmm. But even someone as good, people as good as these have huge difficulty uh, dealing with the, the stresses and problems that Barclay throws at. Everybody does, no matter how good they are. And, yeah, so it is everything it's cracked up to be. You need to have, uh, as uh, one of my support group, Mike Dobies, who has more Barclay fun run finishes than anyone else says, mm-hmm. you need to have a full toolkit to have any chance. You need to be able to run pretty fast, but that in itself will only get you so far. You need to be able to navigate, but you need to be you know, a very competent, bare-bones navigator. You're not allowed any assistance beyond maps and compass, no electronic mm-hmm. devices, no altimeters. you got issued a race watch, uh, which is just a basic... $10 watch to tell us the time mm-hmm. um, you you know you have to be confident you're going to be out there on your own for hours at a time you have to be happy with that probably lost so you have to be able to re-find yourself not, uh, then you've got to find the books and read Laz's instructions about how to find the books and what's mm-hmm. done at once so you need to be able to remember it and not waste too much time mm-hmm. and of course if anyone does complete it Laz makes the course harder for the following year mm-hmm. so that it stays out on the edge of what's humanly possible. So over the years, the course has become more and more difficult mm-hmm. as so each time someone finishes, uh, I tend to look and go, oh, no, I should have <laughs> entered sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm kind of, that kind of is one thing that makes me happy about this year is that at least nobody finished, yeah. so it won't be harder the next time I go back. <laughs> and, there are, I, I have seen, I have discovered out there that there are, uh, I've got, uh, looked at old course and I can compare it to the course I did and the older courses look so much easier in comparison. Mm. So what's been added over the years mm. has made it a lot harder. I, I, I would actually, I think it would make a really interesting race if they, uh, reverted to the first course and gave the modern runners a, a crack at the first course mm. and see what would happen. Mm. I reckon you'd get a lot more finishers, but, you know. Then it wouldn't be the toughest uh, race, I suppose. <laughs> then it wouldn't be the toughest race, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that wouldn't be a proper Barclay. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the cowardly me speaking. The real me knows that it should stay. Yeah. The, uh, the toughest chance, a lad would have nothing. <laughs> and the lads would always want to keep it at the, the, uh, the edge difficulty. Because that's yeah. the whole point of it, to make it that finishing it is so worthwhile that it's mm. worth taking on the challenge in the first place. Mm. Well, speaking of taking on the challenge, the big question I'm sure many of our listeners will be thinking is, do you want to go back in and attempt it again? And uh, will you be aiming to become possibly participant number 16 to complete it? Well, do I want to go back? Uh, yes, would be the short answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately afterwards, it was, I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> someone was saying to Richard, my support man, you know, if, if anyone says, uh, maybe that early on, then they're probably going to say yes pretty mm-hmm. soon afterwards. So uh, it was a it was a yes pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to go back. The big thing is you learn so much um, from doing it the first time mm-hmm. that bringing that knowledge back is going to give you a huge advantage for your second go on subsequent mm-hmm. goals. And I'm the kind of person who has a great memory for location and for navigation and for courses and things like that and I reckon I could easily gain two hours in my first lap if I went back and did that first lap again just from not making the same mistakes Mm -hmm. and and then you start looking at the what ifs and the maybes and the so on and what if the weather was better and the budget more looks and Mm -hmm. yeah then it makes you want to go back 
Finishing it though. Oh man. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I reckon I could I, I reckon I can mentally, mm-hmm. yeah. But physically I'm not so sure. Yeah. Uh, they, the demands of the ups and downs are, are way higher than even I anticipated having read it. No matter how much I read that the reality was even harder again. Mm. And I've taken on some pretty hardcore races like the Spine and you know, the Tour de Gaunt, which is 24,000 meters of climbing over 300 kilometers, which on paper and, and is a very difficult, a very climby race. But, you know, mm. even that running around the Alps for three or four days didn't take as much out of me as two laps of Barclay. I'm so physically exhausted at the end of two laps mm. of Barclay. It was it, quite a hard one to say the least. <laughs> so I, I have my doubts about my ability to finish five laps, but mm. I will always go in knowing that I'm not going to give up and you know <laughs> until I get dragged out yeah. for whatever reason so <laughs> despite the fact that I'm not I'm not sure I could do it I would always try yeah if I if I get the opportunity you know wanting to do it and actually being given the opportunity to do it being mm-hmm. left back in uh, that's two different things yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well as you've mentioned in Barclay it, it's a route that's repeated five times it's clockwise anti-clockwise no particular order which makes it that much more challenging but for you personally which is more difficult or rather less enjoyable for you? Races that are made up of laps like Barclay or a route that has a start and one finish line like when you ran the length of Ireland? Generally, I prefer the journey uh, where you, you have a definite start and mm. finish. You're going from A and B and you know you have a target. The, 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 one of the big problems with uh, timed races, uh, like the 24-hour, six-day races, is if you run faster, you're not actually getting any quicker to the finish line because mm. the finish line is still the same length of time away. Whereas at least if you're going from A to B, you're going to the finish faster. If you run faster, <laughs> you're actually cutting down your time. Mm. So that's quite a difficult one to deal with, uh, much more me- mentally annoying. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I like new places and that's always interesting so I generally do prefer it just mm. making that long journey from A to B the Barclay is kind of a nice uh, how would you put it it's nicely in between the two mm-hmm. it, theoretically you're covering the same ground but because of the way the pattern of it whether how he mixes up the clockwise versus anti-clockwise mm-hmm. and the uh, tends to you've got 12 hour time limit which means you're getting day night alterations as well mm-hmm. uh, and plus you have to hone in on the books for your navigation and the navigation is not so easy it actually even even three or four laps i reckon you know you, well, you need probably need to be about five laps in before you find yourself finding it in any way repetitive you know you'd be, mm-hmm. in some ways it was, it's like just running uh and, and uh, from a to b mm-hmm. the variety is so uh so, um, how do you put it? So interesting. <laughs> Ian, earlier we touched on uh, the preparation you do for ultramarathons and adventure races. Now, part of that preparation comes from having, a, I suppose, the correct diet. From what I've read, you don't have any special formula when it comes to the food you eat before races. But uh, while you are running, it's quite interesting what you don't do. <laughs> Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, I've without realizing it over the years i i pretty much picked up the whole fat burning um theory mm-hmm. and been putting it in practice and that i was especially during adventure races i would find myself out there for days at a time 
loaded up with a load of food and doesn't not being too interested in eating it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my teammates would be on every half an hour, you know, you've got to eat something now. And I was saying, yeah, yeah, I'm doing it. And just ignore it and not eat it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I was discovering was that, you know, one one proper real food meal a day would get you through the next day, no problem, mm-hmm. no matter how hard you were working. And over the years, I figured, you know, I was starting to learn that and how little food you actually needed to get. So if, if my teammates ran out of food, I'd generally be not panicking and say, hey, here, have some of mine. You can have all of mine. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I met uh, Barry Murray. He's a sports scientist and he's another ultra runner and he's a nutritionist. So when I started talking to him, I was expecting to hear the normal you know, have power gels, blah, blah, blah. You need so many carbs there and you're going to run out of carbs after two hours. But no, Barry was into, well, you know, the sort of more modern nutrition of fat burning and so on. And he came fill me in on the whole fat burning theory. And it kind of made, it made total sense to me because it fitted in what I'd do with what I'd learned in practice. Mm. And that, his theory and learning from the likes of, you know, your, your countryman, Tim Noakes and people like that mm-hmm. and their whole ideas on nutrition and so on. And I just found them to be absolutely spot on. and They reflected very accurately what I was discovering in the field. Mm. So that now I know that, you know, you can go for days without needing to, to fill yourself with carbs because you can burn your, your natural fat stores because you're running at a, a slower fat burning pace. Mm. And, you know, if you run out of carbs after two hours, you run out of fat, it, it can be, theoretically, it could be a month, you know. <laughs> People have got caught in, you know, about a couple of years ago in Sweden, a guy got trapped in his car in a snowstorm for two months. Wow. And he lived because he, he was able to get enough liquid from the melting snow, but... Mm. Um, he had no food for two months, but he still lived, mm. which just shows you can last a long time without food. Yeah. So asking your body to run for 24 hours without food isn't actually that difficult, mm. you know, as long as you keep the pace down to a good fat-burning pace. Mm. Now, it helps you train yourself. You know, you don't eat in training. You, you don't eat before training. You learn to, to teach your body to adapt and to burn that fat rather than relying on burning sugar. And over mm. time, you can get better at it. And that's essentially what I've not without realizing that I've been doing it and now that I know the science I can target it more precisely mm. and actually train that way mm. uh, funny enough in the getting back to the support crew at the end of uh, the first lap in the Barclay uh, Mike my American support guy asked me so how much did you eat out there I said nothing <laughs> 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 what <laughs> and I just I didn't even there was no point in the first lap that I was even felt like I needed to eat but I just didn't I carried all the food around so I, mm. I left and that's part of the second lap carrying the same food I'd brought around the first one but <laughs> I ate it on the second lap yeah. more time to eat basically mm. uh, so yeah I put in a lot of this into practice uh, first six day race I did um, the organizers again when they realized how little I was eating were watching and waiting for me to uh, to fall in a heap somewhere but you know I won the race by 40 miles or so and they, mm. they couldn't believe that I managed to pull it off I didn't eat much at all bar mm. an ice cream or two for the first five days or so <laughs> and only ate on the last day because I was so far in front yeah. that it need to worry about losing too much time <laughs> Wow! so um, <laughs> you know it's it's a big as well as being useful from a point of view you want this thing to worry about it's also mm. practically advantageous because you don't have to carry so much food around. Yeah. You don't have to worry about running about it. You don't have to take the time to to actually eat, etc. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's astonishing, uh, Ian, uh, that <laughs> the way you approach your races when it comes to eating or not eating. And apart from the training and that uh, the, that strategy you have, having the correct equipment, I'm sure, to get the right race done is vitally important, considering that uh, you are sponsored by Columbia and they helped you out for Barclay. Yeah, big time. And uh, yeah, it's great being sponsored by, by Columbia because they have some fantastic equipment which really worked well for Barclay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of top runners there were looking at some of my gear thinking, that looks good. That looks interesting. What's that? Because <laughs> they have some, you know, in particular, they have some great uh, waterproof shells mm. outside stream, which uh, it's, they're definitely the best waterproofs I've ever used. And mm-hmm. uh, one or two of the other runners out there were using them as well because they, they've learned that too. Uh, and the other great thing about those waterproofs as well as being uh, great shells Mm. The, the outdoor extreme material is extremely resilient and Barclay is notorious for its thorns which uh, rip people to shreds, rip mm. skin, skin to shreds and can also cause rip gear to shreds. Mm. But I was, I was actually one of the advantages of the bad weather is I got to wear not only my waterproof shell uh, but my waterproof leggings as well. Mm. And uh, as a result, I, you know, only my hands really got thorn rips Um the, the, the shells held up perfectly well. I managed to put one rip into the uh, into the leggings, which is the first time I've ever done it, which is probably from sliding around into <laughs> <laughs> rocks and bashing That's, myself. Yeah. But uh, not a not a, a problem with the the upper shell at all, which is quite remarkable because mm-hmm. normally things get torn to pieces. So mm-hmm. the right equipment makes a big difference when you're mm-hmm. out there in extreme yeah. conditions. Spine is another good tester of that because you know January in in the UK. Um, it's harsh it's you know it's that combat you don't know what the weather is you just mm-hmm. know it's going to be bad in one way or another it's either going to be wet and cold or really you know snowy and cold or mm-hmm. the worst is where it's really wet but not too cold because mm-hmm. you're really stretching the gear in the worst way possible mm-hmm. uh, and having the right gear there is it's critical to actually being able to finish because mm-hmm. um I, I've seen other runners just get totally mentally blown out of it because they're, you know, they're working on their comfort level has gone into a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Whereas having a good gear, you can stay in a relatively safe, safe place and be confident enough. You know, I usually have enough good gear on me that I, I still have one spare set in the rucksack, which I don't need to pull out. Mm-hmm makes a big difference yeah big big difference yeah wow it's incredible how important uh, the right equipment and kit uh, can help you get that race done uh now when we read and hear about ultra marathon runners we tend to focus more on uh, the physical demands that come with the race but how about the mental challenge uh, that you face do you have negative thoughts during challenges and are they perhaps trickier to overcome compared to physical fatigue yes and yes most definitely mm. uh most people reckon that at, at minimum it's 50-50 mental, physical mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to longer dips and stuff. And then that can go way out. You know, for, for me, the likes of a six-day loop race mm-hmm. is probably 80 or 90% mental easily. Um, you know, it, it, that's the hard one just to, to convince yourself to keep going and have that motivation to keep going. And mm-hmm. where do you drag that motivation from? Um, I find myself in... I can remember in one 24-hour running world championships where I was, my my drive was to try and break the Irish 100-mile record on the way, and I actually managed to do it, but I made a mistake of not giving myself a follow-on target. And as a result, I kind of ran out of motivation and ended up crashing 
physically because I'd crashed mentally, basically, and took me a lap or two, about 15 or 20 minutes to recover and get, you know, refine myself and re-motivate myself and get going again physically. Uh, so it's amazing how connected the mind and the body are. And yeah, yeah, yeah with ultras, you really have to have something mm. to, to keep you going. It's so easy to pull out, you know, and the, the more evil genius uh, race directors will give you reasons to pull out, you know, <laughs> yeah. and to, to really test you. Lads be quite good at that kind of thing, mm. you know, right from the point, from the time you get your first uh, email saying you're in, it's mm. like you can pull out any time you like, there's no disgrace in it. <laughs> <laughs> and it. It is actually deliberately to test your mental resolve yeah. because, you know, the race itself is going to test your mental resolve mm. in a big way. No matter what the race is, because you know the whole idea generally is to, to push your limits. If you get comfortable, you're either not racing hard enough, or you're winning too easily, or <laughs> you know you're uh, you need to find a tougher race. So <laughs> it's it's definitely part of it. Yeah. Well, we've spoken about the successful runs you've had and the achievements that have come along with them. However, I'm sure there've been those failures along the way. How do you deal with those? Do you use them as motivation on a psychological level? I use them first and foremost as learning experiences. You know, any, any failure is failures for a reason. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you got to, got to figure out what that reason is and correct it. I, failure is absolutely fine mm. as long as you're learning from it. Doing the same thing, same mistake twice, that's not so good. You know, so <laughs> yeah. I actually, I probably learned, uh, one of my biggest learning experiences would be the first time I do anything. My first adventure race was a huge learning experience because mm. there were so many things I was doing and it was being multi-sport and that. Yeah, my team fell apart very early in the race, but I kept going and we, you know, we built a a piecemeal team out of other people's teams who'd fall apart and we all went on and learned loads. You know, you know, you're able to put that into practice then in all the subsequent races with much more confidence. Same with ultra runs. I learned loads in my first 24-hour run mm. by making lots of little mistakes here and there and, you know, put them all into practice for the second time around that did so much better. So for me, it, failure is just an opportunity to learn. Uh, and I suppose that's part of the approach. You know, I don't let failure face me. The other thing about, you know, having the bad days is you appreciate the good days all the more when you come around. You yeah. know, nobody's perfect. Everyone has the bad days. Even Killian Journey loses the odd race, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you got to, in the end, it's only a hobby. Failure isn't that big a, a deal, mm-hmm. you know. So you got to keep it in perspective, but I think more importantly, use it as that learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. In some ways, some of the races that go better can I can often look back and say, mm, I didn't actually learn too much in that one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I, I, I can can actually think oh, I could have done a bit better long term if I learned a bit more yeah. in terms of putting things into practice. So I do actually, you know, even when even when you have a good race, mm. it's very rare that you have a perfect race. Yeah. But it's usually something you can take away and know that you can work on to get better at. Yeah, well, it's the right mindset to to have definitely when it comes to ultra marathons. Now, you are also a firm believer, Ian, in beating people by outracing them rather than outrunning them. What sort of mindset is required to achieve that now? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much being in favour, it's just I enjoy it most. Uh, you know, 
outrunning is sort of, you know, you can have more natural talent, you can have, you can train harder. It's kind of more physical. And I, mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed the more mental, the, the mental side of racing a lot. And so I do like, so I call it the chess playing aspect of it. And the good thing about it, the longer the race is, the more the more like a chess game it is in terms of outthinking, you know, trying to think on your feet and trying to outthink your opponent and, you know, all sorts of tactical things you might want to do. Now, sometimes you also might work with people, you know, you combine up with people even mm. at the front of the field so you can both do better by working together. And that happens quite a lot. Barty is basically everyone against the course. <laughs> you know, you can find up with everyone you could possibly meet and everyone is happy to do it. And then sometimes you're combining with people and you're wondering at what point do we start racing? Mm. You know, and usually towards the front of the field, people will want to race it out at the end. You, know, mm. you do see Killian Journey occasionally wait for people and to get the company, but I, you do, I have read at one point that he does actually enjoy in the end running away and winning and you know you have to have that competitive mindset yeah. myself so I've always been competitive and as a hill walker I was probably a frustrated competitor uh, and it wasn't until I turned the hill walking into hill racing that mm. I got that sort of mental freedom to let it loose and run at it so I enjoy that, that uh, mental side mm. and the good thing is that's where I get my motivation you know, what we were just talking about there, how do you motivate yourself to keep running around in circles for 24 hours? Mm. I did that by racing. I start racing people. You know, who do I catch next? Who do I need to stay in front of? How, what are the margins? What's the, how am I gaining? How much am I losing? Can I try and, you know, mentally get one over on people by not stopping for a break when they need to stop for a break and things like this? Mm. You know, it's, I've had some great races against people where afterwards we'd have agreed that it was the racing aspect was the really enjoyable part, you know, that mental mm. head-to-head challenge where, you know, the the fitness is just what you're employing, really, it's the mm. mind, you know, mm. the mind racing is the fun bit. <laughs> mind racing, I like that. Now, uh, Ian, with age, they say, comes wisdom, and uh, you are nearing your 50s now. Firstly, how much longer do you think you could be going on for? And uh, secondly, is endurance running for the older or younger generation, in your opinion? Endurance running is for every generation, I think. Uh, there used to be this thought that, you know, it was older people only that you needed to work into it. But you've certainly seen in the likes of UTMB that, you know, when younger racers have given it a go, mm-hmm. they've excelled. So, you know, Xavier Severin, that was very young when he ran Killian Journey, is still young. Uh, there's plenty of people coming up who are pretty young and doing some really interesting stuff. And there's no reason why not. But, yeah, the good thing about endurance is that it, it takes a long time to lose it. So you can be competitive for quite a long time. And, you know, I've definitely lost speed on the shorter races because I'm getting older. But, mm-hmm. you know, I set my 24-hour PB last year, so that excuse is taken away. <laughs> I see people who are older than me who can still set PBs at, mm-hmm. at longer races. I can see guys racing pretty competitively in their 60s at, at six-day races. And when you see older guys doing that, or, and older girls as well, that's impressive. Now that takes away the excuse of, oh, I'm getting too old. I need to, <laughs> I can't do it anymore. And then you look at these guys and go, well, if they can do it, why can't I do it? So uh, it, it's a good motivator, actually. And it takes away that, that simple excuse to say, I'm 50. I can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. So when do, when do I stop being competitive? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll keep trying. 
Uh, I know I'm less competitive at the shorter stuff, which means I'll concentrate more at the longer stuff because I like being competitive. Mm. And I'll, I'll put my focus where I can do best. Um, so I could end up dragging myself into the stuff that mentally challenges me most, the likes of the multi-day, you know, on the flat and things like that. I'll, I'll come back to it, I'm sure, mm. because... You know, I, I would imagine that with, with wisdom, I'll actually potentially get better and still be able to break PBs and that kind of thing for quite a while yet. Mm. So, you know, I don't see myself retiring ever, really, until <laughs> I get dragged off. You know, the only thing that will, uh, that will stop me probably is, you know, some kind of injury that is mm. too much. And even then, I'd try and switch into something. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I also do plenty of cycling, and I reckon... Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't see any reason why I should ever stop cycling. Yeah. You know? Well, with no plans to call it quits anytime soon, are there any other ultra marathons or insane challenges out there that you have thought about doing but haven't got it around to doing yet? There's so many. There, there's so many interesting races in the world that I'd love to get around to, mm-hmm. to give a go at races in interesting locations and, and events I'd like to get back to. Mm-hmm. Any, for example? Is an issue. Um, Oh, there's, uh, in terms of locations, uh, yeah, I mean, adventure races, I've I, I kind of left them behind. I wouldn't mind going back at some stage to mm-hmm. race in, in exotic locations, like South Africa, for instance. Uh, yeah, there's, um, in terms of big, big challenges, I'd like to go back and do another six-day on the flat race again and try and really push out my limits because I've kind of, I've kind of, Stopped a little early in competitive times with the terms in terms of the ones I've done so far. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, big ultra hill races, oh, there's too many to mention. There's mm-hmm. a whole calendar of them out there. <laughs> I, it'd be hard to pick one or two yeah. out. Uh, going back to the Barclay at this stage is probably the most prominent one there. Mm-hmm. The, but even at that, you know, they like the hard rock. They're out there and, and Western states and so on. Races are hard to get into, mm-hmm. and that's half the problem. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to take them off. And again, there's so many. It's, mm-hmm. it's pick and choose. Yeah, well, it's great that there's so much variety out there to to pick from. Now, finally, Ian, what's coming up for the rest of 2018, and how far ahead do you look when it comes to planning for that next challenge? Generally, I, I block it in my, in, into years in my head. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, I'm, I'm looking at 2018 without thinking too much beyond that. Okay. Um, and uh, this year, I, I had gone in with about five, what I call A races, uh, and then Barkley came along, which meant I won A++ race, and the rest were just A-. minus. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So what's going up? The next big one is the Northern Traverse, which is uh, uh, coast to coast across England. Mm-hmm. And it's will be the second running of this race, and I won the first time. So I'm going back. It's a beautiful course. Um, so I can't wait to do that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, then switch completely. There's the European 24-hour running championships, uh, which is totally different kind of racing. And I, was, I have to make that switch in my head. And, that's a change of training, a change of approach, you know, a very different skill set. Um, then the Irish 24-hour running championships, I have to go back and try and defend my title there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the big switch comes back again. There's the head out to UTMB to, to take on the, uh, the most competitive uh, ultra trail running race in the world these days. Mm-hmm. Um and this year, uh, having changed up into the over-50s category, I'll be looking to try and race to get a podium in my age category, which mm. will be 
<laughs> setting myself up quite a challenge yeah. there because uh, you know it is such a competitive race that no matter where you're racing mm. it's, it's interesting uh, and I think I think that's the A races for the year I might do the Dublin City Marathon uh, simply because it was the first running race I did and it'll be the 20th anniversary of it this year so mm. I do my first marathons in about first proper road marathon in about 15 or 20, 15 years or so just to for the anniversary sake yeah. of it, but uh, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, maybe one or two more things might slip in, depending on how holidays are going. Juggling holidays is actually the hardest thing, yeah. finding time for everything. And, uh, you know, obviously, I want to spend some holiday time with my wife as well and mm-hmm. so on. So it's, uh, real life has to be juggled in there as well. And the reality of only having a limited number of days would be great. Mm-hmm. The one big adventure of being a full-time athlete would be you could... Uh, days are easier to come by mm-hmm. and holidays are probably the biggest constraint I have in terms of how many races I can enter because yeah. the one disadvantage of, of big races like these is they take a lot of time in terms mm-hmm. of holidays mm-hmm. even just travel time and, and ten, then the time to actually race them that's the, the constraint mm-hmm. so the other thing I want to do is mix in a lot of the, the, the shorter races there's a lot of uh, the Irish Mountain Running Association races I haven't been doing enough of those mm-hmm. they're great fun Mm-hmm. So I'd like to get back in and do some of those over the summer season and, uh, yeah, just enjoy the time racing in the hills. But, again, <laughs> finding the time and mixing it all in so that you're not overtiring yourself and, yeah, keeping mm-hmm. keeping mentally sane whilst doing it all. But the main aim is to have fun. Yeah. And sort of the fact that I'm turning 50 is something I intend to exploit mm-hmm. to actually try and... <laughs> race my age category yeah. while I'm still in the younger end of the 50s category <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well Ian uh, Barkley might be done and dusted but uh, you've got a full plate of uh, of races coming up for the rest of the year which is absolutely wonderful thank you for taking the time to join us uh, on the Hard as Nails podcast your stories are certainly inspirational and uh, once your collarbone has uh, completely healed we wish you all the best in the adventures that lie ahead for you thanks for joining us Ian uh, thank you very much it was my pleasure to talk.